All right, good morning. It's great to uh, once again be opening the Word of God together. We're going to spend our time studying the Word of God here in just a moment, but I want to take a moment just to open us in a word of prayer. So if you would pray with me. Father, once again, we thank you for today. We thank you for this opportunity to be worshiping you through the study of your word. We thank you for those who are worshiping with us. We pray that your word will accomplish all that you have set forth for it to accomplish in our hearts today. Lord, these are interesting times that you have allowed us to be in. We know that you are a sovereign God, that you are over it all. And we know that nothing is a surprise to you and nothing will change or even alter your providential plan for your glory and our good. So we thank you for that. We can trust that. So Lord, this morning as we look at your word, may it be authoritative in our hearts. May it speak to us through the power of your spirit that it might affect our lives, change us, cause us to to be children which uh, both in word and deed honor you in every way that we have been called to and commanded to. And help us this morning, Lord, to understand what it means to, to be discerning Christians, to be discriminating Christians. And so we thank you for our time. We ask your blessing upon it this morning as we worship you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, this morning I want to uh, take a little different direction in our study as we have been studying through Second Peter and learning about how to strengthen our faith, have our faith strengthened and uh, steadfast in times of difficulty in, in life itself so that we will remain steadfast to the end. And this morning, um, I want to kind of piggyback on what we were talking about last Lord's Day in Second Peter on this whole issue of identifying the false or being, as I said when I was praying, a discriminating Christian. Of course, we mean that in the right sense of the word. We hear a lot today about discrimination, and we would certainly uh, agree with much of what is said that we are not to be discriminating based upon the ethnicity of people or those kinds of things. But we are to be those who discriminate against what is true and what is false. We are to be those who, as Christians, understand how uh, to do that. And we know, as um, as we look at this, we, we understand what it is a Christian is to be. And so this morning, I want us to just open our Bibles to 1 John chapter 4, because I want to spend some time there looking through this whole idea of, of identifying the true and the false. We, we know what a true Christian is. True Christians have, indeed, they have eternal life. The Bible clearly tells us that. In fact, without a relationship with Jesus Christ, which brings us into a relationship with God the Father, there is no eternal life. In fact, this is what the entire book of 1 John is about. How can one have eternal life? And also, how can one know for sure? How can they be certain? We've talked about certainty from Second Peter. Well, First John is really has that idea running all the way through it. How can someone be certain that they are true? That their true Christianity is true and not a counterfeit Christianity. 
And so true Christians have eternal life. And with, with true Christianity in Christ comes a life that reflects certain characteristics. In fact, we'll just kind of briefly go through this really quickly in 1 John, just to kind of get us up to the place in John chapter 4 that I want to speak about this morning. But you notice in John chapter 1 and verse 5, it says that God is light. Since God is light, those who are in a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ will then therefore also desire and walk in light. And we understand what light is is a metaphor for there. It's simply a description of, or a a picture of purity, of sinlessness before God. The idea of walking in the same characteristics that God is Himself. He is light. And so, since God is perfectly pure, those who are His own should strive to live pure lives as well. We should strive in our Christianity to be just like God. Christ in our actions. How? By first recognizing and acknowledging our sin. And that's what John speaks about in verses 8 through 10, right? If we say we have no sin, then we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him, that is God, a liar, and his word is not in us. That's a pretty definitive statement as to the actions of a Christian on a continual basis. Continual confession is not a way of gaining salvation, as some might try to say, because we have an advocate with the Father, who is Jesus Christ, pleading our case according to his righteousness. We can never gain righteousness on our own. We have no capacity to gain enough or the right sense of righteousness because it is only God's righteousness that he accepts. And so true Christians are obedience-striving people. That's the characteristic of a Christian, to be obedience-striving, a desire to obey what the Word of God says the desire to continue to grow in practical holiness no matter where we are on the spectrum of spiritual maturity. In fact, John here in chapter 2, you notice in chapter 2 and verses 12 through 14, separates out those basically within these, this spectrum of maturity. Some are little children, some are young men, some are fathers. And he, he lists... Uh, those three kind of categories there. So no matter where we are in that spectrum, we are to be striving for obedience, the desire to exercise the non-love that we have for the world. In fact, that's what verse 15 down through verse 20 or verse 17 says, don't love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father isn't in him. Now, he's not talking about simply just sinning 
as a, as a person, because we know we still battle that reality, even though we've been saved from the ultimate eternal consequence. He's saying the, the practice of a life, the continual drive of a life for all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the father. It's from the world and the world is passing away and it's lust are passing away. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. He's just using that practice, that outworking that, that picture of one who follows after the things of the world as being someone who cannot have God abiding in him because God is not of the world. And so, since God is perfectly righteous, then true Christians practice righteousness. And that's really the idea and theme from verse 29 of chapter 2 all the way through chapter 3. And verse 10, they practice righteousness. No one is born, verse 9 of chapter 3, no one is born of God. No one who is born of God practices sin. It's not saying you don't do sin anymore, that you're perfect and there's no sin in you anymore. We know that from chapter 1. We can't say that. What he's saying is this habitual practice of life, this reality in which you, you care nothing about your sin. You can't do that. Why? Because the seed abides in you if you're a Christian. And therefore, you can't go on practicing sin like that. That's the idea in that next phrase when it says he cannot sin. The idea is that you cannot go on continually sinning without this reality of sin happening and going back to this confession before God. Why? Because you're born of God. You're born of God. So there's no such thing in the context of God's family for someone who claims to be a Christian or who is a Christian to go about continually and habitually sinful without any kind of thought about it, without any kind of desire to rectify it. And so be assured that they truly have a relationship with God through His Son if your reality is that you understand that you sin. You continue to sin before God and you go to Him in that desire for forgiveness. One of the places that manifests itself, this idea of practicing the deeds of the world or practicing sin is through a lack of love for others who are true Christians. In fact, John says in chapter 3, verse 10, he says, by this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Well, what is that? Well, how do we tell? Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor, do, nor the one who does not love his brothers. And so all the way down through verse 10, all the way down through verse 24, chapter 3, John is laying out this reality that true Christians truly love. They love in a way that they ought to. And as we have seen over our own study uh, some time ago, and we even studied through this entire book, but just of recent, right? One of the greatest ways that a lack of love for one another is manifest today in evangelicalism is through the neglect of worshiping together with one another. If we love God, then we keep His commandments. And what are His commandments? Whatever truth that comes from His Word. Whatever His Word tells us. And so to say that we love God and not keep His commandments, that is sin. We know that the Scriptures command us to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. 
Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. That's, that's the whole idea. We have the hope that we have because God is who God says he is. And let us then consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds based upon that hope, based upon who the character of God, based upon how we are living and how we ought to be living. We stimulate one another in the same way. So there's the command of God. Be continually thinking of ways that we as Christians can love our brothers and sisters in Christ through the provoking of them. That's what stimulation means, that poking and prodding in a right kind of way. Think of ways how we can push them along to greater and greater love and good deeds. But that's only part of the command there in Hebrews chapter 10. It's only part of the command it would be easy for us just to think of those things. Oh, I need to think of ways in order to stimulate. It's easy for us to just get into this contemplative state, if you will, and just think of ways that I could love somebody, my brothers and sisters in Christ, but that's only half the command. The other half tells us that the time of when I can do that, and it's most effective. How do I stimulate them? if I'm not with them. That's the whole idea of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. And we've mentioned that over time, even in our study here in the church. So the principle, when I decide arbitrarily and in and of myself to neglect the command of God to love my brothers and sisters in Christ through my own neglect of His command to be around them, to be in their lives and interacting with their lives, then not only am I sinning against God because I've refused to obey His command, but I'm not loving my brothers and sisters and helping them grow to greater love and good deeds. Now some, some who profess to know Jesus Christ will say quickly, is not all, or isn't that not all that important for me, I mean, can't I, after all, worship God anywhere in my heart? Can't I be worshiping God when I am by myself? And here's the irony of that. It's true. It's true that we can be anywhere and pray. In fact, the Bible tells us to pray without ceasing, to be continually in prayer. So while you're even driving the car by yourself, you can be communing with God in prayer. That is true. And it is true, we are called to be thankful in all things and thankful everywhere. So anywhere that I am by myself, I can have a thankful heart. And that's even true in some sense about fellowship. I can fellowship away from the body of Christ. I can have a fellowship with God, a communion with God that is going on. But the irony is that God has so designed His body, the church, the people of God who are the true church, He has so designed it that His body and worship of Him are made in such a way that you cannot receive what God intends you to receive through your brothers and sisters without being with them. That's just the way it is. That's how God designed it. None of us are stimulated to love by our self-imposed aloneness. No one is benefited by our not being with them. So how can we be truly, and in one sense worshiping, when at the same time we're being disobedient to the clear commands of God? 
Listen, the best way to worship God, the best way to worship God, the highest form of worship to God is obedience to his commands. And I think God's church is hurt at times by the neglect of professing Christians to not be around other professing Christians. Now, does that mean I can never be away? Does that mean I I can never be apart from other Christians when it comes to the corporate time of worship together? Let me answer it this way. Let's not forget that this is the command of God, number one, and that God is sovereign over schedules. God is sovereign over illnesses, as we are seeing even in our day. He's sovereign over our work. He's sovereign over all things, whatever it comes about in our day that we have no control over and even sometimes no input in. So the question then becomes, when and if I must be away, what is the cause? What is the cause? In other words, if I can be and I'm not, then why am I not? That's the question we need to ask, and we need to make sure that we're just not rationalizing our way so that it appeases our own guilty conscience rather than doing what God commands. So Christians have eternal life. Christians are to live pure lives. Christians are to confess sin continually. Christians are to obey the commands of God. They are to love their brethren. And true Christians have assurance. They have assurance, and they have it by the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so we come to 1 John chapter 4, and I want us to see this morning, tying this in with our study of 2 Peter, this whole reality that true Christians discern. True Christians discern. We might even put it in a way that I said it last Lord's Day. True Christians are discriminating. True Christians are truly discriminating. And I know that may hit the ears of some of us in a weird way because of that word discrimination. But I again, I want to say we mean it in the best way. We are to be deciding between true and false. We are to discern. We are to be discriminating. Notice how John puts this in chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Why? Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this we know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you have heard that is coming. And now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now, we, we understand as Christians, like I said before, that the Spirit of God is given to every true believer. This is 
part and parcel to the biblical truth and principle and doctrine of assurance of salvation. The reason that any of us as believers does anything good, in fact, the ultimate reason behind any true love that we may have for one another is not born in us. It's not inherent in us. It is produced by and powered by, if you will, the Spirit of God who lives in us. And knowing that assures our hearts that we are children of God. In other words, without Jesus Christ, I wouldn't care as a person if I ever loved anybody other than to love them so that I might get something back. But that's not God-like love. Christ came and loved no matter what. So none of us would obey. None of us would believe. None of us would strive for pure and righteous lives. None of us would love each other without the Spirit of God living in us. And so any good that we do, whereby God is truly glorified in us, as it says, as we are commanded in 1 Corinthians 10.31, to do everything to the glory of God. If there's any good that we do that God is indeed glorified in, it is produced in us by the Spirit of God as we walk in submission to the Word of God. But John is telling us here in chapter 4, that there's another spirit in the world. There's a spirit of God that lives in the Christian, but there's another spirit in the world. There is the spirit of God who who is given to the Christian by faith in Jesus Christ, and that spirit sends us as servants of God into the world as ambassadors for God. That's, That's the category of our life. That's who we are as Christians. As Paul says, we are ambassadors of the gospel. But the spirit of Antichrist, or the spirit of the anti-Christian, if you will, has also gone out into the world. And the lines of what is truth and what is false, because of that, are now blurred in many ways. The world is filled with religious words that sound very good. It's filled with religious teachers who who make grand claims concerning truth, that they are speaking on behalf of God. And the true Christian, John is saying, is responsible to exercise that discriminating mind, that that judgment, that discernment concerning these kinds of things. The best part about this responsibility for us as Christians is that we have the Spirit of God. And the Word of God, we have it to light our way. We know what the truth is. We don't have to try to figure out the truth. We know the truth because we have the Word of God. And so the true Christian can and the true Christian must discern truth from error. That is an individual Christian responsibility. We cannot rely on others simply to say, okay, you tell me what the truth is. We have to be able to discern truth from error. And John gives us here two very practical ways in which we can do that. Two tests that we can apply to everything we hear to see if it's true or not. The first test is a Christological test. 
We'll see that in verses 1 to 3. And the second test is what I like to call an audiological test. An audiological test. And that is in verses 4 through 6. And I'll explain it as we go. So let's just begin with the first one. The Christological test. The Christological test. John says... He's spoken about assurance. He's given this reality that we are in Christ. And here's some of the characteristics lived out in the first three chapters of this book. That true assurance of salvation ultimately comes from the Spirit of God. And now we are to practice discernment between the Spirit of truth. All right, he says that in verse 6, right? By this we know the Spirit of truth and the Spirit of error. So here we are being commanded, being shown how to practice this this discernment, this discrimination. Notice it says in verse 1, do not believe every spirit. Do not believe every spirit. Here again, we are commanded. This is a command of God. This is an imperative in your original language. It is a command of God. And we are commanded through John by God to exercise or to practice this Christian virtue. This Christian virtue called discernment or discrimination, if you will, and in the right sense of the word. Christians are to make judgments. We hear it all the time. Someone says, you can't judge or you shouldn't judge me. And that is just simply to misunderstand the reality of what a Christian is to be. Christians are to be those who discern, who make judgments between that which is right and that which is not right. Oftentimes we hear from the world Uh, somebody who might even know the Bible in some sense, they've heard it in our day and age, they'll go to Matthew chapter 7 and they'll say, listen, doesn't it say uh, you shouldn't judge anybody because how you judge, aren't you going to be judged? You can't judge me. The fact of the matter is, we are to make judgments in the right sense of the word. We are commanded to make judgments and to continually make judgments based upon truth. Certainly it's wrong for me to make a judgment about someone else based upon me as the standard. That's that's never right. But when I hold it to the truth, that's the very thing that I'm judging it to. So we can even be a bit more clear and specific when we talk about this idea, right? We are commanded as Christians to not trust or to not give any credence to every spirit. That's the idea. Don't believe it. Now we need to understand some things here that John explains by means of the term spirit at the end of the verse. He says, by this, We know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Notice it is defined as uh, this whole idea. There's many false prophets, right? He's talked about that at the end of verse 1. Because many false prophets have gone out of the world. Okay, test the spirits. And one of these spirits is defined as false prophets. False prophets. So here we, we get a, a, an understanding of these terms. When we see in the Scriptures, normally Spirit with a capital, that's speaking of the Holy Spirit or God the Spirit. And when we see Spirit in this little kind of S idea, particularly in the context here in John, it's contrasting false teachers with true teachers. The Spirit of truth, 
and the spirit of error. Or we could even equate this that whatever is with the capital S idea, that's true, right? That's the Holy Spirit. He is absolute truth. Whatever is small here, that's in some ways, if the contrast isn't being made clearly, like at the end of verse 6, and then and the idea here in verse 1, and then you see the capital, it's the, the translators capitalize spirit there in verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God and the smallest spirit that confesses Jesus is Christ, right? That's what the Spirit of God does. This is the Spirit of God. He, he's every spirit, every teacher that confesses this. And everyone that does not, in verse 3. So you see this contrast going on. And the truth, absolute truth, comes from the Spirit of God. Falseness comes from those who do not know God. So the false prophet then proclaims a false message, an untruth. And so to believe that kind of prophet is tantamount to believing the Spirit that is speaking through them. Or that the words, those, the, the ideas, the doctrines, the teaching come from. And we want to be able to discern the difference. So John says, commands us, test the spirits. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God. So the principle behind this is very simple. In contrast to giving credence to any teacher and every teacher who claims to be from God, John says, no, keep testing the veracity of those teachers by what they teach. In fact, in um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he exhorts the very same thing to the Thessalonians. Just listen to this. Chapter 5, verse 19 and following. Do not quench the Spirit. Of course, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Don't, Don't quench the Spirit. Don't... Don't hinder the Spirit's work in you. Do not despise prophetic utterances. He says, don't, don't hinder the Spirit. I mean, you don't want to just stop somebody who says, hey, I'm, I'm speaking from the Lord. You don't, want to, you don't want to do that. You don't want to stop that. But you examine everything carefully, he says. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. You see, that's the same principle. You hear it. But you're discriminating. You're, you're deciding what is right and what isn't right. So even in the Old Testament, there was a test of a genuine prophet. And the consequences were quite severe. In fact, Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 to 5, puts it this way. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and even gives you a sign or a wonder, well, these are people who have risen among the people and by means of demonic forces, they're even doing miracles. Because it says in that text, and the sign or wonder comes true. So here's somebody who's saying, like we hear some of the charlatans today, I'm healing people. Here's somebody who's actually maybe by the power of the demons doing these very things. So it comes true concerning what he has spoken to you, saying, and then he says, in that, he does this, this work and this sign, this wonder. And then he says, in chapter 13 of Deuteronomy, let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. 
So here's the message. He's done this. He says, I'm from God. He's even done a miracle. And yet he says, let's go serve this other way. This, This way in which is contrary to what God has said. God says, do not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. Why? Because the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You see, part of loving God with all our heart and all our soul is only listening to what God says. Doing what God says. Following after what God says. Following after His Word, not after something contrary to His words. He says, you shall, not, you shall follow the Lord your God and fear Him, and you shall keep His commandments. Listen to His voice, serve Him and cling to Him. You see the contrast being made there? It isn't about what that person might be able to do. You see that clearly in Matthew chapter 7 when they come and say, but Lord, didn't we do this in Your name and cast out demons in Your name and do all these things in Your name? And Jesus says, away from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew You the same thing so how serious is that before god this claiming of things that are not from the word of god and claiming it is well deuteronomy 13 verse 5 says it this way but that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has counseled rebellion against the lord your god who brought you from the land of egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So she'll purge the evil from among you. You see, God said in the Old Testament, listen, you don't have anything to do with that kind of person because they're seducing you to walk in a way that's contrary to what my word says. And so this is what John is saying here. This is a call for us to be discerned, discerning Christians. Discernment in a real, in a, in a needed way that is so needed today in evangelicalism. And so he says the first test for this discernment is this Christological test. Notice what he, how he puts it in verses 2 and 3. He says, by this you know the Spirit of God. Now, he's just defined the reality of this Spirit and says, test them to see if they're whether from, they're from God or not, or from the world, this false prophet. See, see which Spirit it is. Well, how am I going to do that? Well, by this you'll know the Spirit of God. Here's the first test. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus and the implication there is that Jesus has not come in the flesh, is not from God. This is the Spirit, or this is of the Antichrist. The word Spirit is not there in the original language in that second phrase. This is, the, this is of the Antichrist of which you have heard that is coming, and now it is already in the world. So here it comes. Here's the question that John is answering in the minds of us as Christians. How will I know if it's from God or not? Guy says, hey, I'm on behalf of God, or I'm speaking the Word of God. How am I going to know it's from God or not? John says, you'll know by what they say about Jesus Christ. You'll know by how they profess who Jesus Christ actually is. In other words, you can distinguish truth from error by what is said about Jesus Christ. 
Because the Spirit of God will, and the Spirit of God does approve of what the Bible says about Jesus Christ. Now, we might even think of it this way. The message has been genuinely approved by the Holy Spirit. Why? Because it is the Holy Spirit's ministry to give witness to Jesus Christ and glorify Him for who He is as Lord and Savior, God in the flesh. The Bible tells us that. John chapter 15, verse 26. Jesus says, this is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 15, verse 26, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, who is that? The Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will testify about Me. He'll give witness about who Jesus is. John 16, verses 13 to 15. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth. Why? Because He will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take of Mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are Mine, therefore I said that He takes of Mine and will disclose disclose it to you. Now, right there in that phrase is the classic reality that God the Father and God the Spirit and God the Son are one. All co-equal. God in every way. And so the Spirit of God only speaks and discloses the truth about Jesus Christ because He comes from the Father. He takes that which is Christ, and what is the Father's is Christ's. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 3, Paul says, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. Someone comes in and says, like Deuteronomy chapter 13, oh, look at all that I've done. I, the will, God is with me. Let's go follow after this. Let's not think of Jesus in the way that the Scriptures teach about Jesus Christ or who Jesus Christ is. That is not the Spirit of God. That is the Spirit of the Antichrist because the Spirit of God will never say, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. He's not saying no one can say it just with words. People say that all the time. But remember I said the Christian life is reflected in an outworking of life. And so no one can just say Jesus is Lord and their life not reflected. If He is Lord, it'll be lived out. And so John gets very specific here. What's he say? Confesses what? That Jesus Christ has come in the flesh from God. Every spirit that does not confess that, does not confess that Jesus has come in the flesh from God, is not from God. That's the spirit of Antichrist. You see, John isn't claiming that there are many Holy Spirits. No, what John is saying is that there are many who claim to know God, many who claim to even know Jesus, but they do not rightly teach what the Scriptures teach about Jesus. There are many false religions today. You know of them. They're in our world today. The Roman Catholic Church, 
doesn't believe that Jesus is who the Bible says he is because justification is for your sins is, is borne out by you along with him and, and somehow mediated through Mary to, to you so that you might earn enough grace and, and get to the place where, where you're, you're maybe going to make it to glory if enough people after you're gone pray you into heaven. That's the devaluing of who Jesus Christ is by his very deity. The Mormons say they believe in Jesus, but it isn't the Jesus that's a God. That's God. Even the Jehovah's Witness say Jesus isn't God. So what does the Scriptures teach? They teach that Jesus came from God. That simply means that God became man, as Philippians 2 tells us. That Jesus is God in the flesh. Many might affirm allegiance even publicly and say they have faith in Jesus, that they're true Christians and confess that by their mouths, but they deny that God came in the flesh. This is the Christological test. Someone who says that they're a Christian have to be asked what, what they believe about Jesus. Who is Jesus? Is he God in the flesh? His incarnation, his, his humanity cannot be separated from his godliness and who he is by way of his divinity. He is the God-man 100%. So verse 3 makes that very clear. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the Antichrist, which you have heard that is coming and is now already in the world. Spirit of Antichrist. Not from God. It doesn't matter how intimidating they might be as a person. It doesn't matter how many letters they might have at the end of their name because of the education they've been given through the institutions of our society. It doesn't matter how intellectual their argument might be. You can rest assured that you are standing on the truth because... Verse 4 says, you are from God, little children, and you have overcome them. Why? Because he, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. You see, he says, you don't need to be frightened. You don't need to be go, well, I, I, I can't answer all the questions they're asking. I can't think through all the things they're asking, but they're saying something strange to me. And the, but they have more education to me. Maybe they're right. Maybe I'm wrong. Listen, you can rest assured, you know God. If you know Jesus Christ by faith, believe that he is God and know that for sure by the power of the Holy Spirit in you, you are from God and you have overcome them. Why? Because he who is in you is greater than he is in the world. And you can be assured that your judgment is correct. Your judgment of what they're saying and what they're doing isn't biblically accurate concerning Christ. And it's of the world. They're living and speaking contrary to what the Scriptures teach concerning Jesus Christ, and it's of the world. Stay away from that kind of teaching. It doesn't matter if it comes in a book form, if it's on the top 10 sellers list in the Christian bookstore. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who it is on the radio, on the TV, or whatever. If they speak about Jesus Christ contrary to how the Spirit shows us Jesus Christ in the Word of God, then it's not from God. You say, well, aren't there false teachers who claim the truth concerning Jesus Christ? 
Aren't there false teachers who err in other ways? Aren't there some who say, yeah, Jesus is God, and yet they're still false teachers? How do we discern that? How do we know that? Well, that leads us to the second test. First is the Christological test. What do they say about Jesus Christ? But that's not the only test. John gives us a second test. And I call it the audiological test. As some have even called this the bibliological test. You can look at verses 5 and 6. Notice what he says. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. You notice the contrast. They are from the world. We are from God. We could even say it as John said in in the first chapter, God is light, right? We are of the light. They are of darkness. Anybody who speaks falsely about Jesus Christ is speaking according to the spirit of the world. By world, that just simply means anything that is contrary to what the Word of God says. Anybody, anything is contrary to God and His Word. So their speech has its source in a system controlled by that which is not godly. It is of Satan, the prince of the power of the air, as Ephesians 2 says. And the world listens to them. So this is why I say it's the audiological test. Audio just is hearing, right? To whom do they listen? To whom do they listen? To whom do they give credence to? To whom do they obey? To whom do they follow? That's the idea. The world listens to the world's voice. It follows what the world says. But the discerning Christian follows God. The discerning Christian goes, okay, I hear what's said. It might even sound logical. and It might even make a whole lot of logical sense from a human perspective. I hear it, but now let me take what I've heard. Let me take what is said and take it back to the only objective reality that I have. The Word of God. And let me sift it through the Word of God to see if it be right. The discerning Christian follows God. We obey the Word of God. And those who know God listen to us. Those who are following the Word of God walk with us. Why? Well, it's not because we have something great to say. Not because of anything in us. Not because in and of ourselves we are something. No, they listen to us because we are to be speaking the words of God. The words of God. And where we, where do we get the words of God? The only place we have them. The Scriptures. That's it. We listen to the Scriptures. We only have the words of God in the Scriptures. And the Bible speaks the truth about the Son of God, Jesus Christ. If someone will not listen to the Bible as it's rightly divided, as it's as we gather the, our understanding from its context and its historical framework and the principles that are, are there and then bring that and, and begin to draw out the implications for us in our life, someone will not listen to that rightly divided, then they are listening to the world. 
And if they will not listen to God, then they are not of God. Why can we say that? Why can we say that? Because the one who has his origin in the world won't listen to the truth of the word of God. In fact, it repels them. It repels them. They don't like it at all. Do you want to be discerning today? You want to be discerning about the religious teachers of our day? You want to be discerning about what is said in the world today? What is going on in evangelicalism today? You want to know who's telling the truth? The word of those who rightly divide the word of God. Now, this is an imperative on us, isn't it? This is an imperative that each and every one of us as Christians must then indulge ourselves in every kind of way to know the truth, to know the Word of God. Because John says, by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. What drives them, see? This is what's behind it. This is what's the, the wind in your sail, as Peter said in Second Peter about the giving us of the Scripture. This is the spirit that drives truth and the spirit that drives error. Whether it's from the world, whether it's from God, how it speaks about Jesus Christ, how it implies those truths in the life of a person. And so over the last several weeks, we've talked about this whole idea of being discriminating, discriminating when it comes to truth and error. And a lot of it sounds good. There's a lot of things going on in evangelicalism that sound good. They'll even say things that are true of Jesus Christ. And so we have to know the Word of God. doesn't matter how spiritually mature you are doesn't matter how long you've been saved. The tests are the same. The Christological test and the audiological test. True Christians are truly discerning and the tests are clear. What do they teach concerning Jesus Christ? And do they and all who listen to them affirm and seek to obey the clear, rightly divided teaching of the Word of God. Those are the tests. And so John says in verse 7, and let us love one another because love is from God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Well, how do I know that's manifested in people? By this, the love of God was manifested in us. God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might have life through him. See, he's taking it all the way back to the idea and the reality of Jesus Christ. He continues to drive to this point that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, that there is no salvation in anyone else other than Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh, and that the true Christian's life is lived out in obedience to what God has commanded by power of His Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ in His Word. We go to the Word, we rightly divide it, we rightly understand it, and we begin to live that way. That's why John can say in verse 20, if someone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar. 
You cannot say that you have a strong, viable relationship with God whom we might claim to know and yet go on disregarding the commands of God. Because His commandments, He says in chapter 5, verse 3, are not burdensome. What overcomes them? What overcomes the things of the world? What gives us victory? Same thing Peter says, our faith. Our faith. Trusting Entrusting ourselves to God. Doing what He says. That means that we better know our Bibles. We better know our Bibles. We better know the truth so that we're not deceived. So that we're not coming up short. So we're not listening to something that is not true. Better take it all back, like Paul said, to the Scriptures. And be like Bereans seeing if that which is said is true. I would hope you do that with everything that, that I ever say from this pulpit. You take it back to the Word of God and you look through it and you study it out and you look at it in its original language and you go through the historical context and the theological context from Genesis to Revelation and you, you hear the heart of God as He speaks from His Word and you understand the principles. You say, okay, all right. When you hear something you don't understand, you go and you make it before that person. You go and you ask questions and you say, help me understand how you got there. Help me understand where you came to that conclusion from this text, because here's how I come to the conclusion. And you interact together and you don't get angry with one another. You interact with one another and you do what Hebrews chapter 10 says. You stimulate one another to greater love and good deed. And so this is the word of God. This is how we are to discern between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. As we come to next week in our study, next time we'll be back in 2 Peter, and we'll be piggybacking on this as Peter shows us exactly the spirit of those who are false there as well. I hope, I trust this has been helpful. I trust it will be helpful in your own Christian life as you begin to walk through these things for your own good and the glory of God. And I trust that the Word of God will be uh, living and active as it is for you as you profess Christ, as you know Him as your Savior, and as you study His Word. Now let's pray together. Father, we thank You for this morning. We thank you that we could be together and we could be studying your word. We thank you that your truth is always truth. It never diminishes in any kind of way that your word is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, that it divides down to the thoughts and intentions of the heart, that everything that we might think it exposes, shows us where we're wrong. It corrects us. It hems us in. It, 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 It's like a doctor for our very soul. And so we're grateful for that. Lord, we're certainly not wanting to be arrogant. We're certainly not wanting to be people who who claim in and of ourselves that we have all the answers, for we have none. And the only place that we have our answers is in your word. And so I trust that we would hold tightly to that that we would proclaim it boldly, that we would stand strong in our faith as you strengthen us. Lord, continue to encourage us as we pray for others, as we pray for friends and family and
and even our own hearts, that we would not be following after that which is false. So thank you for the objective truth of your word in such a subjective world. Help us to hold tightly to it as we obey you. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.